Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. I come to you as one of the 10% of Jewish children who survived the Holocaust, most of them gone by now. Among the six millions of Jews who were killed were a million and a half of children, 90% of them. Of course, I can tell you only my survival journey, but those of us fortunate to be left alive become also the voices of the children who did not survive to tell their story. I was born in Warsaw, in the capital of Poland, when the Nazis attacked Poland. I was five years old. My immediate family was made up of four, but we had a large extended family in Poland made up of about 100 members. When the Nazis attacked Poland, it seems to me that Warsaw was under siege for a few weeks. Day and night, day and night, bombs were falling. We lived on the top floor of an apartment building where it was the most vulnerable place because bombs were falling through the roof ceiling and into the homes. So with the cooperation of friends who lived on the second floor, we moved in with them. But even there, it wasn't safe from the bombs. One night, a bomb, into, a bomb fell into that apartment, exploded by the door, leaving the only way out was through the window. My father, who was a very tall man, knocked out the window and jumped, and he said, we have to quickly follow him before the whole place gets engulfed in flames. When my turn came, I stood on the windowsill and looked down. It seemed so far down. I was so scared I was unable to move. My mother pushed me out the window. Somehow my father did not catch me and I fell on a pile of glass cutting my arms and legs. When the family was down, my mother picked me up, carried me to a bomb shelter and there she was sitting pulling out shards of glass out of my limbs. These running to bomb shelters occurred over and over, particularly at night. At some point, with the lo we lost the water. A bomb severed the water pipes, and the only way we could get at least drinking water is running down the street when there was still a functioning hose or faucet. I remember exactly where I was when Nazis entered Warsaw. I was in our own apartment. I don't remember it was the fourth or the fifth floors, but I was too high up to see the faces of the Nazi soldiers. They were filling the width of the streets, marching 10, 15 abreast. But strangely, I could see the reflection of shining boots pounding the pavement. You know how many years have passed since the war ended. When I talk to students, I tell them the war ended not just before their parents were born, but probably before most of their grandparents were born. Yet there's still some sound, some smell, some aromas to which I still react emotionally. One such sound are low-flying planes. 
Another one is a rhythmic pounding on a hard surface. I hear it and I tighten up. My parents felt that being Jewish, and also my father was the leader in the labor union, the Jewish division, both were liberal people, that as such, they would be among the first ones to be persecuted by the Nazis. So sometimes during the winter of 39 and 40, they sold the lease to our apartment, hired a Polish guide to smuggle us across the border into the Soviet Union. On one side, Poland borders with the Soviet Union. Why to go there? Because at that time, the Nazis were not there. As you know, later during the war, they attacked the Soviet Union as well. And why to smuggle us? Because the borders were closed and they would not allow anyone to enter. I remember the last leg of that journey trying to cross the border. It was in the middle of the night, extremely cold. We were wearing layers and layers of clothing to keep warm and also to minimize on the luggage. We were sitting inside a wagon of hay, the hay over our faces, over our heads, and over all that, an old blanket. So should a Nazi soldier come across that wagon at night, he would not be able to see that there are people in it. At some point, this man stopped, let us off in an area that was surrounded by tall trees you couldn't see what's beyond that. And he said that we had crossed the border and pointed where we were to take the train towards the city where my parents were headed called Bialystok. We huddled up for the remainder of the night, and when we woke up in the morning and left that area, we saw a field with thousands of people laying on the snow, leaning against bags, suitcases. This man did not take us across the border. He left us on the no man's land. My parents did not want to go back to Poland from where they were trying to escape. My mother pulled out a blanket, spread it over the snow among people. People were sitting very close one next to the other. She also pulled out a down comforter, commonly used in winter in Europe. And this place in an open field in the winter became my home for about six weeks. My mother would repeat over and over, move, move. If you move, you are not gonna be that cold. I moved as much as I could, and when I couldn't anymore, I would crawl under the covers. At some point, my feet got frostbitten. I had open wounds, was unable to wear my shoes, it was too painful. So my mother tore a garment of hers and wrapped my feet in rags, and I shuffled around as well as I could. The only food we were able to buy was that which the peasant women from nearby villages would come after sundown, bring bread, boiled potatoes in their skin, sometimes farmer cheese, and charge exorbitant prices. The only fluid we had for drinking is melting snow. There were woods in the areas and people were making fires to warm themselves and also to melt the snow for drinking. 
I remember many scenes starting with the no man's land in the years of my Holocaust. But two images from the no man's land are vivid in my mind. I woke up one night and there was a strange man next to me under the covers. I tried to push him out, but apparently I fell asleep. And when I woke up in the morning, the man next to me was dead. People were dying from diseases, from starvation, from exposure. Now the peasant women, in addition to bringing bread for sale, were also bringing shovels and the young man buried the dead in shallow grace. The other situation, I was standing with my mother by a fire trying to warm myself, and a young woman approached, holding a baby in her arms wrapped in blankets, and people assumed that she wanted to warm herself and her baby, so they parted, letting her come close to the fire. But as she did so, a man looked into her arms and said, Lady, your baby doesn't need warming anymore. The baby was dead. The man took the dead baby out of the mother's arms and proceeded where the Soviet soldiers were guarding the borders, and the crowd followed him. He put that baby in front of one of the guards, and the crowd started shouting, Let us in, let us in. See, we are dying one by one. That guard didn't say a thing, just kicked that baby back into the crowd. And I'm sure, like all others, it was buried. My parents apparently concluded that they have to take some drastic steps or we are not going to survive there in the field, seeing people dying. One night, my father smuggled himself across the border. On the Soviet side, he bribed an official to give him a letter permitting the family to cross the border. But when he returned with that letter, the letter apparently said about his children, but said nothing about my mother. And the guards would not let my mother go. Our parents decided that my father should take my sister and myself to safety and see what he can do thereafter to smuggle mother across or bring her any other way. We walked a whole night in the forest. And for me, it was extremely painful because my, the wounds on my feet were wrapped in soft rags and the earth was frozen and hard. But eventually we made it to the city Bialystok. Around that city were clusters of Jews from Poland. We ended up in one such cluster. It was a wooded area with a lot of scattered little cabins. This must have been at one time the property of a wealthy landlord. And the scattered little cabins were for his workers. No furniture of any kind, a few families on the floor in the small cabin. But after being for six weeks in the winter in an open field, laying on a wooden floor with a roof over my head, I probably felt like a queen in a palace. 
My father had no more money left. And also travel in the Soviet Union then was forbidden. Only those who were big dignitaries or had a lot of money to bribe an official would be able to get a ticket and a permission to travel. So my father tried to reach the no man's land on rooftops of trains. He was caught by the police, put in jail for a while, let out, and then kept on repeating it and repeating. During all that time when our father was gone, trying to save our mother, my sister and I were left alone. Here and there, some caring person offered us a meal, but I don't remember how else we were able to eat. Eventually, our father made it to the no man's land, but by the time he got there, no one was there anymore. The Nazis came, took all the people, including my mother, put them on trains in direction to Poland and Germany. For a little girl to think that she might never see her mama was difficult to understand how it could be, and even more difficult to accept. Our father found some work and the city was commuting daily. My sister and I were left alone. She became my little mama and we managed as well as we could. Days went by, weeks went by, maybe even more, Nothing unusual happened. Then one day, we were standing over a basin propped up on a low stool so I as well could reach it, trying to do the family laundry. What did I know how you do laundry at age five? I spilled it on myself on the floor. My knuckles got bloody trying to use a board. My sister was angry. I was upset. In midst of all the tension, the door to our cabin opened, and our mother walked in. You can imagine my enormous joy and excitement, but also confusion. We didn't hear from her. We didn't know whether she was alive, and suddenly she shows up. It took me a very long time to trust that my mother will not vanish one day. Maybe just like she showed up, she will disappear. I would wake up many times at night just to touch, is mama here? Well, we were happy now. We were together. That was the main thing. And we were no longer hungry as we were on the no man's land because whatever our father was earning was enough to, was enough to buy food. But the joy did not last for very long. We started hearing that Soviet soldiers were coming in the middle of the night and taking away all the young men, and no one knew what happened to these men. One day, there was a rumor that our cluster was scheduled for such a raid. So my mother took the train where my father worked to warn him not to come back until he hears from her. But she missed the last train coming back to us that day. And that night, when my sister and I were alone, Soviet soldiers kicked in the door of the cabins. They'd say, get your stuff. And they marched us to a train station where there was a long line of cattle cars. And they would shove in as many people as they could in each of those cars. 
my sister and I cried and cried that we are not going to go without our parents. And those soldiers kept on telling us lies. When the platform was almost empty of people, we saw from a distance a small truck and our parents on it. Was I happy to see them. As soon as they arrived, the soldiers shoved us in in one of those boxcars. So many people in each of them that there was no room for anyone to stretch themselves on the floor. People were leaning against one another, against bags, whatever they could. There were two sliding doors that would pull together to close the boxcar, and on the outside, across them, a heavy metal bar to door, hold the doors in place. When the doors were pulled and we inside, we were unable to open them. We had to wait until the soldiers decided to do so, and you never knew when they would. Many times the day went hours and hours and we were still in the, with those closed doors. And when the doors were pulled, it was so dark inside, you could hardly see. There were no windows. The only light was that which was coming between the cracks of the doors, of the boards, that is. <clears throat> Once a day, soldiers walked around with buckets of soup, and everyone was given a cup of soup. On some days when we were lucky with God with a, a little piece of bread, but those lucky days were very far apart. Most of the time, a cup of soup was the food for the day. Once, sometimes twice a day, they let everyone out under the train to relieve themselves. And you know, it doesn't take too long. You forget about that notion of privacy, but you just do what you have to do. People were extremely hungry, tired, trying to sleep in a sitting position. Many were getting sick, and everyone scared, not understanding why the soldiers picked us up, where they're taking us, and what they will do with us. We were on the train somewhere between six and eight weeks, I'm not exact. And then, through additional means of transportation, Delivered, we were delivered to a labor camp in the Siberian taiga. Taiga is an extremely dense forest covering the northern part of Russia. Our little houses were placed right against the forest. Bears would come to the door front. At night, we heard Siberian wolves howling, and we were scared because we heard stories about wolves attacking people in the dark. And in Siberia, in wintertime, it's dark most of the time. There are only about three hours of daylight, and the rest is dark like night. And in the summer, it is the reverse. Temperature there would drop to 50, sometimes 60 below. If a bird, for some reason, didn't fly away on time, it would freeze to the tree like a lump of ice. And when you were outside and did not have layers and layers over your face, breathing felt like swallowing sharp objects. 
you couldn't be outside with any skin exposed for more than a minute or two because the skin would get frostbitten. We did not have clothing for that kind of a climate. And for me, a kid that size going out in the winter most of the time would have been too dangerous because the snow was taller than I was. Everyone had to work, including my older sister who was 10, turning 11. The main work was a cement factory. And some young men were sent to further clear the forest. I did not talk to my children about my Holocaust experiences. As a matter of fact, I did not talk to anyone about it. There were people who worked with me for many years, and all they knew is that I was born in Europe. When you read my memoir, which we have there, published by the University of Michigan, you will understand why I started talking about it a few years ago. But my youngest child, Naomi, kept on asking me and asking me, and apparently I related some bits and pieces because I found in her high school writing a reference to two situations in Siberia. There was one store, the, the governmental store. Rarely did you need something for your daily life and you could find it there. People would go frequently to the store to see what do they happen to have there today. But no matter what they had in the store, it was rationed. Everything was rationed, including bread. My mother sent me to the store to get the family's rations of bread. And bread was a big, round, lumpy loaf exposed, sitting on the counter, black like mud and heavy like clay. And the clerk in the store would weigh, in our case, what was the portion for four people? And I told Naomi that I was giving a large piece and with it a tiny little piece. And it took so much willpower for me, me to resist my desire eating the little piece because I was extremely hungry. So Naomi said, if you were hungry, how come you didn't eat it? I told her, this was the bread for the whole family. And we had to wait until mother divided it and let us have it. But no sooner did I hand over the bread to my mother, she took the little piece and put it in my mouth. At some other time, when it was my birthday, my mother said, let's pretend that there is no war. What kind of a present would you like for your birthday? And I told her, big loaf of bread and that I could eat as much of it as I want to. And I saw tears flowing down her face and I had no idea what did I do wrong to make my mama cry. We were very, very hungry. We were in Siberia somewhere between two and two and a half years. And I remember during that time one day that I wasn't hungry. And I remember that day very well. We were given a tiny little piece of land and we planted potatoes. And my mother said, on the day we harvest the potatoes, we'll have one meal that you can eat as many potatoes as you want to. 
The day we brought the potatoes from the field, the store had fresh herring. My mother got a herring, cut it into little pieces, and we baked the potatoes outdoor and ate them with herring. I don't remember how many potatoes I ate, but I remember a thought that stayed with me thereafter for a very long time, and that is, I thought, maybe when I grow up, I'll be so lucky I'll become rich. Not a little rich, but very rich. Then I'll be able to eat potatoes every day. For me to eat potatoes every day, I thought, either you have to be very rich or royalty. Well, I'm neither one nor the other, but I do eat potatoes. I still like potatoes, but now I have to be careful not to eat too many. From Siberia, they shipped us to Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan then was a southern republic of the Soviet Union. Now it is an independent country. I am sure that my parents felt that going south to a warmer climate Life will be easier, food will be more available. But while we were very hungry in Siberia, we were starving in Uzbekistan. They placed us in a very poor farming village. My parents were not given any land to cultivate, and there was no way of finding work. My father walked from farmer to farmer, willing to do any kind of work in exchange for food. Once in a while, he would get a day's of work, but most of the time not. There were stretches of time that we lived on boiled grass and leaves. My mother would go into the field, pick up grass, leaves, anything else that was growing wildly. She would boil it, drink it first herself to see how she reacted to it. If she was okay with it, she would give it to us as well. There was one stretch of time that we lived on broiled onions. Some farmer must have had a good crop of onions and in exchange for some of my mother's clothing, she got a bag of onions. We all came down with malaria. Malaria is such a difficult, difficult disease. You could see a person one day, he looked in fine shape. A week later, he was gone. And if you survived malaria, you were so weakened that I, after recovering malaria, and I did have malaria, I was so weakened that I was unable to walk recovering from malaria. There were some Jews from Poland. I don't know who they were. They lived in Uzbekistan also. And they established orphanages for Jewish children. I don't know who they were, how they were able to do it, but they did. And they would recruit not just orphans, but any Jewish child from Poland. And this was simply an attempt of saving the children from dying of starvation. One day, a man showed up 
in the village, talk to our parents. Next day he came with a horse and buggy. Our mother told us we'll go to a place where there will be other children. Food will be more available. And they, our parents, will visit when possible. I think it took us a few days on that buggy until we came to the orphanage in another village. The, the orphanage was basically contained in one large room. From one end of the wall to the others, boards had been ripped off the floor, propped up on stack of bricks, and girls were laying tightly on those boards, one next to the other, covered with old blankets, and their heads completely shaved. Remember me with the braids? They shaved my head completely. Across the room, the same arrangement for boys, and their heads shaved as well. The caregivers shaved the children's heads because the sanitary conditions were horrible. I don't remember when and where I was able to take a bath or a shower. And they feared that under those conditions, the kids will come down with lice that spread diseases, and apparently lice nestle in hair. Well, we found out very quickly that lice nestle in all kinds of other places as well, because we were about 100 bald-headed kids, and we ended up with those crawling things all over you. Your skin burns and itches so badly that you are ready to rip it off. I know I was bleeding all over, just trying to, to, to scratch myself. And you know the strange thing? You know how many years have passed. I talk about it, and my head itches so badly <laughs> that I have to hold my hands. I would like to. It lasts a few minutes, and then it goes away. A few weeks after entering the orphanage, my father died. There was an epidemic of dysentery in the village my parents lived. No physician, no pharmacy. My mother walked a whole night to another community in search of penicillin. I don't know whether she got it or not, but when she returned, my father was dead, buried in a communal grave. My mother didn't even know in which one. The war ended in 45, but I stayed in that orphanage in Uzbekistan till 46. I don't know what was the reason we were unable to return sooner, but I had no other options but to wait. During all the years of the Holocaust, Extreme hunger, almost to the point of complete starvation, was a daily part of my life. There were years of great loneliness when I was in the orphanage without my parents. The few adults who worked there, their main function was to see where they can get some food. We were kind of left to our own devices. There were many years of anxiety, not knowing what will happen from day to day.
But you know, I never thought of myself that I was poor. I don't even know whether I knew the distinction, poor or rich. I just knew I was very hungry. And I assumed that everyone around me was hungry as well. And I tried to do everything possible to keep myself constructively involved. I learned to read myself when I was quite young, Polish, because Polish was my childhood language. And while in the Soviet Union, I learned how to read Russian and would read anything I could put my hands on in one language and the other. When possible, I attended a kind of a semi-school, but my educational opportunities were extremely limited. The only place I was expressing how I felt and what I thought was in writing poetry. I was writing poetry since I was a young girl. My home in Michigan was hit by a tornado in 1975. Half of the house ripped off and blown away. It was in West Bloomfield. With it, most of my belongings gone. A few years ago, I was looking for a book which I thought survived the tornado. And to my great surprise, not only did I find that book, but in that book, I found one notebook of my poems from the orphanage, probably written between 44 and 46. You can imagine how yellow that paper is with age. I was afraid to pick it up that it will fall apart in my hand, but it didn't. And reading some of those works as an adult surprises me that nothing in it indicates this had been written by a child. Nothing cute, nothing funny just expressing longing for normalcy, how wonderful it would be to live in a small place just with my family, not a hundred kids in one room. And not to be hungry must be marvelous. I am sure I didn't remember how it felt, just imagined, and going to a normal school. And seeing again my cousins and and uncles, and poetically describing Poland. Poland to me was the paradise on earth. But of course, I left Poland, I was five years old. <laughs> but when I returned to Poland with my orphanage, nothing of what I envisioned or hoped for turned into reality. I spent another four or five years after the war in orphanages in the city called Krakow. Anti-Semitism was still raging in Poland after the war. Quite a number of Jews had been killed by Polish people after the war, particularly in small towns. The tiny, tiny Jewish community that was left alive tried to do everything possible for us, the kids who survived to protect us from any harm, and to provide as good condition as they could. The orphanage was for Jewish children. The school was for Jewish children, a handful of us kids. So it was a tiny little school in one room. The caregivers, the teachers were Jewish. That 
school took us once to what used to be a concentration extermination camp. In the display room was a pile of shoes, men's shoes, women's shoes, little kids' shoes, shoes of those who were sent to the gas chamber to die. There was a tall pile of hair. Women who had long hair, they cut their hair before sending them to death, and they used the hair for various purposes. There were lamps with shades made of human skin. Soap made of human flesh. It took me an enormous length of time before I could take a bar of soap in my hand and not think of my aunts, uncles, and cousins. I told you that my extended family in Poland numbered about 100 members. Not a single one of them survived. Every one of them was killed. For my mother to continue living in Poland, she felt after the war, was like living on the graveyard of her brothers and sisters. She and my older sister, who was by then married, she married a boy from the orphanage, they decided to leave Poland, that they didn't want to be in Poland. The only place they could go was to Israel because the Israeli government was helping the Holocaust survivors who wanted to immigrate. I did not know anything about Israel. I was so eager to make up for my lost years of education. I was so wanted to know and understand. But the ruling in the orphanage was that once I reach the age of 17, I will have to leave and take care of myself. I did not know anyone in Poland, nor any other place outside of the orphanage. The orphanage was my world of people. Though I did not live with my mother and my sister, I was able periodically to visit them. And apparently, they provided some emotional support which I needed, because I did not have the courage to be left alone in Poland after my mother and sister leave. So in 1950, I joined my mother to immigrate to Israel. Israel was a different chapter of my life with different challenges. I did not know anyone in Israel. I knew I would have to support myself. I was pretty sure I would have to support my mother as well because she was a sick woman. And I did not know the language spoken in Israel, which is Hebrew. But as you can see, I survived. I don't want to leave you with the thought and the feeling, here is this poor woman who had such a tough <coughs> life, because I absolutely don't think of myself as the poor woman. Not only am I fortunate that I survived, I am fortunate that I survived, that I was able to create a meaningful life and significantly contribute to my community. This is my passport photo when I came to the United States. 
I was 21, 22 years old, uh, was married, had a little baby, and did not know a word of English. That was the third country I was coming without knowing the spoken language. Soviet Union without Russian, Israel without Hebrew, United States without English. But fortunately, when I was young, I was picking up languages extremely fast. It didn't take me too long. I entered the University of Cincinnati. I lived in Cincinnati for about 17 years. I earned an undergraduate degree in psychology, then a master's in social psychology. A few years later, I entered Xavier University, also in Cincinnati, earned a second master's, an MBA, with a major in hospital management. I had very rewarding work as a healthcare executive. For a year, also, I served an advisory committee in Washington, D.C., a committee that dealt with women, children, and drug addiction. I am retired now, which means I work and I don't get paid. <laughs> but I do think that are very meaningful to me. I have tried all my adult life to live by the Jewish ethical principle called in Hebrew, tikkun olam. Tikkun olam literally means repairing the world. But implied in it is that we each have a responsibility to do everything we can to make this world a little better for everyone. How I do it is, first of all, how I relate to people in my life my personal, professional, volunteer. I respect fully and equally every good human being. Doesn't matter to me what's the color of their skin, what's their religion, where they came from, what's their lifestyle. All that is irrelevant. They're a good human being. I welcome them. They have my full, full respect. I try to use my time and my skills to enrich the life of my community. Maybe one of these days you will decide to visit our magnificent museum, Detroit Institute of Arts. And if, we meet, if you meet me there, there I'll talk to you about art, not about the Holocaust. I conduct tours, I teach art. Or you might find yourself in the courthouse and the judicial system with some legal matters. And the judge will say, you have to go to mediation first. You might end up with me. I'm a mediator in courts. I am on the board of directors of the oldest civil rights organization in the US called the American Jewish Committee. I do all those things as a volunteer. Of course, I studied all those subject matter, so I can do those. But the most important thing, my mission in life now, is to use my Holocaust experiences to promote tolerance and diversity. What I told you is less than the tip of the iceberg of the story, and we'll come back to that. But the I am referring here 
to the darkest chapter of human history, where a leader, Hitler, a political system, fascism, a party called the Nazi, decided that only those who are tall, blunt, and blue-eyed had a right to live, and no one else, because they were the preferred race, the Aryans, and no one else has a right to live. But you know, horrors like Holocaust usually don't come on all at once. They start off with some social policies of injustice that people willingly or unwillingly accept, and then they are passive bystanders as those things through increments grow to become monsters difficult to control. You know, Hitler and the fascism came to power in the early 30s in Germany, a time when Germany was one of the most culturally advanced countries in Europe. The sophisticated Germans could not believe that anything horrible can, could happen in their country of composers, poets, and artists. And they were bystanders as little by little by little. You know, fascism and other totalitarian systems start off with attacking, delegitimatizing the free press. Then the same happens with the judicial system. Then finding a group of people to use as a scapegoat and dehumanizing them, creating an atmosphere of fear and anger, yes. And this was, the, those were the techniques of Hitler. And you know, Hitler was democratically elected and able to come to a position that he became the killing, his whole system became the killing machine. But before he focused on killing every Jew, it was convenient for Hitler to pick Jews as the scapegoat because anti-Semitism existed in Europe and he knew that he would get help. But before that, he killed the mentally ill, the sick, the handicapped, and quite a lot of clergy who were in his way. Yes. <coughs> and you know, hate and prejudice doesn't know geographic boundaries. We hear right now horrible things happen to Christians in some Middle Eastern and African countries. Since the University of Michigan published my memoir, into no man's land. I have been invited all over, not just Michigan, but all over the country. And what makes it possible for me to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles is this guy who sits back, my significant other, Bob, <laughs> because he's the director of transportation and logistics. It means he drives, he carries the book, and that's everything to make it possible for, for me to keep on traveling and talking. I can only tell the story of my personal experiences and what I know how it happened. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Straight from the Author has been brought to you by MyWarn. To hear more podcasts like this, visit MyWarn.org. Again, that's MIWarn.org.